Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Clearmotive Marketing. Thank you to my business partner, Chad Croker, and the entire team who worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make this show a reality. As a founding partner at Clearmotive, I'm excited to announce the official launch of our industrial marketing system. As a company with 15 plus years of experience with a variety of clients in nearly every sector, we identified that industrial manufacturing companies were underserved. You have unique needs, and we have developed a unique skill set to help you succeed. If you build and sell a product that helps other companies, we have developed an industrial marketing system to get your highest priority product in front of your ideal customer profile in less than eight weeks. Gardner recently reported that your buyers are 87% of the way through their buying process before contacting your company directly. That means it's never been more critical to apply the right marketing process to create and close more deals. Our three-stage industrial marketing system helps you shorten your sales cycle by using modern marketing tactics designed specifically for your industry and more importantly, for the way your clients like to buy. Stop sitting on the sidelines wondering which part of your marketing is working and put a system in place that makes it easy for your most valuable prospects to find you and get excited about your solution to their challenges. To find out more about what ClearMotive's industrial marketing system can do for you, please check us out at www.clearmotive.ca IMS, or better yet, open up your email and contact me directly at tyler at clearmotive.ca, T-Y-L-E-R. I'm excited to chat with you and put a plan in place to get your most valuable leads contacting you and not your competitors. Hello and a warm collisions of YYC. Welcome to Mr. Stephen Van Deventer. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing great, Tyler. Thank you so much for coming on. Classic How the World Works. We got introduced through a mutual, a mutual friend. Uh, really curious. This is going to be an interesting conversation for my audience. You're the chairman and CEO at Asterian Cannabis, as well as the chairman and C- CEO at Previceutical Medical. Cannabis, a little bit self-explanatory uh, in the name. Previceutical, you guys are a biotech, which we'll get into in a second. But I really want to pick your brain. So, well, l- let me let me give you a chance. I'm diving in with my questions, the eager uh, the eager interviewer here. How about give us a quick little elevator pitch? What is Asterian Cannabis and what is Previceutical? And then we'll kind of work our way into maybe sharing your views on kind of the cannabis industry over the last handful of years. Mm-hmm. Perfect. That's great, Tyler. So ultimately, um, Asterian Cannabis, we're a... Um, a cannabis company that is uh, going to be developing a facility in Australia that's basically going to be fully integrated all the way from plant tissue cultures all the way through to cultivation and then into direct sales and, of course, the different derivatives of you know extraction and medical delivered um, cannabinoids. Okay. So we're focused only directly on medical pharmaceutical grade cannabis. We have no interest in the recreational space there. Okay. Curious, um, just, a, just a quick question. What, where, is, where does Australia sit in terms of regulation around cannabis? Is it similar? Like I've, I've got Canada or certainly Western Canada as a reference point. Where is Australia kind of in that, in that mix on their journey? Australia in 2016 um, allowed medical cannabis okay. and they're still only at medical cannabis. Ah, I see. Um, I suspect, you know, sooner or later in the future, we'll see recreational come there. But I, do, I think it's three to five years potentially more away before they look at the recreational side. Uh, oddly enough, um, uh, Australia is much more conservative than I would have expected when it comes to cannabis. That's, that's why I was kind of curious, because sometimes I've heard industries where there's some parallels or you look to what's happening there versus what's happening here. But so medical, and that's obviously where you guys are, are staying in terms of your, 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 your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Correct. And then as for Previceutical Medical Link, um, it kind of is, uh, came as an offshoot of... Uh, of cannabis because I actually got involved in December of 2013 
which saying that now seems so long away, that <laughs> um, I got involved in the cannabis space. And um, I was one of the, the co-founders of Aurora Cannabis that helped, um, you know, take the company public, raise the money, uh, rebrand the company from Relief Marijuana to, uh, you know, to Aurora Cannabis and get them on their journey. And, uh, you know, once my job was, so to speak, done, it's never done, but, you know, when it was time for me to, mm -hmm. to look into other things, I realized there was a niche that, you know, you just can't go to a doctor's just can't sit there and say, you know what, grab yourself a joint and smoke that, you know, that's going to help you. <laughs> you know, first of all, they cannot condone smoking. It just completely goes against their DNA. But even furthermore, how can they provide dosages and what do they know and what can they prescribe? You know, there, there is no real science. I mean, there is science, but there's no clinical evidence that, you know, you use an indica and this strain for this ailment and you're supposed to take, you know, 10 milligrams a day or 20 milligrams a day or whatever the, uh, the dosages are. And none of this science was there. So I decided uh, to open Prevaceutical, which stands for preventive medicine, for example, like your know, pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, which are like vitamins, etc. Now we have Prevaceuticals for preventive health. And so that was really the purpose behind it was to deliver uh, science and clinical driven data that we can take to doctors and say, here, this is how you, you prescribe and the cannabis. And of course, creating those products to go along with that. Okay. So I definitely see a theme for you in terms of staying kind of in the medical side of things, but actually trying to adapt the cannabis, the opportunities for health benefits through cannabis into the way the medical system works. Cause they're not, cause it's not going to go the other way, right? <laughs> correct. 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 Yeah, you're not going to like take this joint and call me in the morning kind of, kind of approach here. <laughs> see how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me know. And from a use case perspective, I think there's a lot of people out there that have the, Oh, I tried it once and my God, I had this terrible experience and this happened and that happened. Cause you really ultimately very self them know what you were actually quote-unquote trying <laughs> yes because you know you know when people smoke recreationally you know um times have changed i mean uh, i'm 53 years old and i remember when i was in my late teens and i never consumed it because i was born and raised in south africa and south africa was very very strict about drugs so you were concerned about even being around it um but you know when i came to canada in december of 86 few of my friends were there that came from South Africa started smoking it as well. And it was completely different. The the, the quality, um, as they said, is BC Bud back in those <laughs> yep. days and the skunk and all the different stuff was much higher THC uh, percentages. So um, that's what happens. Somebody used to smoking at a lower grade or lower THC and all of a sudden they try this and it's a, a, a much higher one. And it can really, really affect them. So once again, that goes to dosage, you know, how much it's like drinking, you know, you could be drinking beer at 5% you know, alcohol and somebody can give you a, 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 a four ounce glass of vodka and it's a completely different story. <laughs> the, the, it's all about outcome. Absolutely. <laughs> well, hey, 2013, wow, that's like just to settle for that. Like that was nine years ago right now as we're coming on to 2022. Yeah, December. December. Yeah, yeah. And the cannabis space. So 2013, what was going back from a regulatory? Like just, because I'm curious, you know, getting your perspective, getting in that early kind of where we've ended up. And it seems like it's such a roller coaster. And I know, I know a bunch of people that have made money. I know a bunch of people that were kind of got caught holding the bag or they were in too long or whatever you want to say the reason might be. So like 2013, was that when we were starting, was that when medical came on online in terms of Canada for regulatory? I'm just trying to think 
think back, that feels like forever ago. Yeah, so that's what medical started. Well, medical's been a lot longer. It's been since, I think, 2000 here. Mm. But that was more of the old AM, AMPR um, versions they had, where it was basically grown for own medical use and very, very sporadic. And not much was really known about it in, in the mainstream, so to speak. Right. Uh, but uh, in 2012, 2013 is when they started talking about uh, bringing corporations involved to being regulated under Health Canada, and they had this whole new program. And uh, that's when they turned it to what's called MMPR. Um, at that time, and I can't remember, it's been a well, while, it was multi, oh God, it's been a long time what MMPR stands for. Um, Medical Marijuana Purpose Regulation, if I believe. Okay, that, you know what, that's, I'm, I'll, buy, I'll, buy, I'll buy that. <laughs> Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even speaking confidently, um, speaking, speaking confidently is half the secret here. <laughs> yeah. And at that time, you know, there were no, there were very few. I think the first license that was issued was, I think, Bedrocan was one of the first licenses issued. And I think at the time I was there with Aurora, I said we were application number 69 with Health Canada. And there was over, I think, like within. 2014, there were over 1,600 applications that already put in, and I think we were the 13th company licensed uh, for cultivation. And back then, it was a little bit different than it is today. You know, you had to, you you got you know you you got what was called um, RTB ready to build. So what you do is you put together your application, um, where you're going to build it. You had to have the property lined up because the the license were address specific. And you made this whole, what you were going to build, the whole, you know, designs, everything. Once you went through the rigorous protests, uh, process, uh, Health Canada gave you what was called an, an RTB back in those days. It was ready to build because no one wanted to go spend 10, 20, 30 million dollars building a facility. And of course, nowadays, a lot more money. And then the government goes to, sorry, we're not going to give you a license. <clears throat> so they came up with that thing called RTB and said ready to build where the plan was, you basically were pre-approved for license as long as you delivered what you said in your application. So you would have a facility this big with this security, this type of vault, all these different elements. And then when they came and inspected it and it met everything of the health candidate requirements and what you said you would do, then you would get your cultivation license. Then they had another step from there. Once you finished your cultivation, you had to check your... your, your um, your flower went out for some tests and evaluations to see if there was any type of molding or any type of you know, any contaminants that wouldn't meet the criteria. And once that was all passed, then you were only allowed to get a sales license and you could sell it. And then, of course, that it then grew later to uh, what they called cannabis 2.0, which became edibles and other derivatives of and oils of, of different type of um, cannabinoids. Okay. And so, from that period of time, we're like what 2013 to kind of 2018. And what, when did we when did we actually legalize in Canada? Like, we're just I'm just trying to create some little benchmarks here in my mind. It's all it's it's all yeah, legalized. Yeah. The, the, well, in the in the in the, under the MMPR, it was really about 2013 in, okay. under the MMPR okay. prior. I think it was 2000 onwards for AM, AA, AMPR. Okay. AMPR. And then the recreational side, or certainly when it kind of really hit the mainstream, that was later, what, 2018 yeah, or so? Fall 2018? Uh, maybe even earlier because uh, Trudeau took power in 2016 and he was the one that pushed on the recreation. So it could have been 
I've got to remember. It might be the right 2018, but it could be 2017, 2017. After, okay, I just there. Wikipedia. I'm 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 a I'm a quick typer. Uh, Canada legalized the retail sale of cannabis nationally on October 17, 2018. That's right. Right. Interesting. Wow. It's it, yeah. It's, it is. It does fly, and it's with COVID thrown in there. I kind of just look at everything as pre and post COVID. Everything else just kind of blurs. It seems to blur together. <laughs> so curious, your perspective on kind of where like it seemed like everyone was running a million mile an hour. There was like stories of like, you know, wealth being created. Uh, then all of a sudden it feels like we hit a roadblock or we hit a hiccup these last couple of years where all of a sudden, is it just simply that, you know, supply outpaced demand or that we weren't able to dislodge the black market or kind of what was your perspective of just, you know, now I'm asking you to kind of step back into the overview mm-hmm. position. How do we get to where we are and what kind of where, where, where is that? I guess. Look, in my opinion, it was a combination of everything. Um, from the people that got into the industry to uh, the regulators on how they approached and regulated the industry to many, many different factors. And uh, so let me step, as I said, step back there a little bit. So when this came out that, you know, that we were going to be able to do... um, to do uh, medical cannabis and going to recreational cannabis in the future mm-hmm. in Canada, um, a lot of people that got involved, for example, you know, Canopy Aurora, um, Tilray, you name, they weren't really cannabis people. These are more business entrepreneurs okay. uh, that got involved. So um, they were all in a race, in a rat race to get you know, first to market. <clears throat> and then from there became who could produce the, the most... Um, quantity in a facility for example the first aurora facility Dunna cream moore alberta uh, was licensed up to seven and a half thousand kilos a year and now they talk about facilities that do a hundred thousand kilos a year much bigger um and so it, it became a, a lot of cowboys entered this race well <laughs> where you know, the, the entropy cowboys was about to just get raising money taking the companies public and promoting, promote, promote, and it really, um, the investment bankers behind that also saw an opportunity to to excel at that by pushing it as well. So, of course, the valuations became absolutely absurd. I mean, once you received your Health Canada cultivation license in the beginning, I think this was 2014, maybe even into 2015, the, the your valuation just for the license was forty million dollars. You know, they they give you, and then from the valuations keep increasing. So he looked at, and I'm going to speak more to Aurora, not anything negative with Aurora here. Just I'm I, I followed it much closer, being involved with mm-hmm, it. Of course, um, you know the company stock traded up to sixteen dollars a share, and at one point they had a billion shares. So really talking about a sixteen billion dollar market cap. You know, and then you have Canopy that went up and I think $25 million market up one point, maybe even higher. And so these are these companies that have got multi-billion dollar market caps in two or three years uh, or less than four years. And you've, you know, and they've spent probably only three, four, five hundred million at the time in investment. And, uh, and there was zero sales and, 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 and only getting going and learning curve. So there was a big frenzy there. Uh, the, the people in the industry, the entrepreneurs, they took advantage of that, saying, well, everyone wants to throw money. So the more money people threw it, then the more they just kept building or buying, uh, taking uh, aggressive acquisitions. I mean, Aurora bought uh, Medrelief for, I think, $3.1 billion in a hostile takeover. 
Uh, you know, there's many other examples of that. There were just multi, multi, hundreds of million dollars of transactions going across. And what they really didn't look at down the road is, you know, there was some goodwill. A lot of that was goodwill. You know, um, Leaf didn't spend $3.1 billion building that company. I mean, I, I, I don't even remember the numbers, but I, I think they were lucky if they spent $100 million over the time, over their years, building what they had So um, before the takeover. So, I mean, there's, there's a $3 billion write-down, or let's even cut that in half, so it was a billion and a half write-down. So those took major um, knocks on your financial statements. So... After this whole started to catch up with them, and then there were some more triggers. For example, uh, Bruce Lipton did a phenomenal uh, um, transaction with uh, Constellation Brands and brought multiple billions in investments. And that fueled the market too. Okay, well, big tobacco is coming next. And who else in the alcohol industry? Because so it fueled everyone thinking that, you know, instead of uh, you know, pharma coming, we'd have tobacco and alcohol because tobacco needs something else because that's a dying industry. So maybe it can be cannabis. Alcohol is looking for, you know, maybe it'll take away from alcohol because people consuming cannabis. So maybe it's a secondary natural uh, evolution of them to take on that as a, on a recreational side because alcohol is technically recreational. Um, so all these things fueled each other. And then after a while, you know, the stories had to stop, you know, because it's, as I said, it started with who got a license. Then it became how many kilograms could you produce a year? Then people started talking about, oh, we're going to build a million square feet. We're going to build four million square feet. We're going to build. So all those stories uh, kind of got stale after a while. And then it really came down to where the, um, the analyst and the more conservative banks saying, look, you spent you know a billion dollars. So you spent a hundred million, whatever it is. Where are the revenues? And so now there was this challenge with revenues uh, that they had to compete with, and that's really has taken. That's what's been the biggest um, collapse of the industry over the last few years because those write downs and their excessive purchases or accessibility. So they've had to, you know, cut this operation and cut that operation. And of course, no one wants to do a big cut right out of the gate. So they do a little bit here, a little bit there, and it just delays that whole process rather than a hard kick in that. And then, of course, these companies have taken massive, massive devaluations over time. I mean, if you go look at any stock chart for a 24-month period, it starts at the top left of your screen, beautifully nice and high, and <laughs> dribbles all the way down to the bottom right of your screen. I think over the last 18 to 20, 24 months, I think most of the companies are down to 10, 15% of the valuation they were. And that's 18 to 24 months ago, and that's far away from the highs. Yes, yes. Um, Interesting. I mean, Aurora Downs is down to about $4 Canadian today. And I think, you know, with the pre-split, they did a, a rollback of 12 for one, I believe it was. And it was a high of $180. So look at $180 down to $4 a share. Ouch. From the all-time high. So a lot of money is being... So now that's all taken effect with investors, too. They're scared now to get back in because a lot of money was made by people. But where there's money to be made, somebody has to take a loss. <laughs> yes, it, that balance sheet has to equate. There's a plus, there's a minus somewhere on it, for sure. So, mm -hmm. so from where, where and crystal ball, where, where where do we head from here? Are we are we at the bottom? Have we quote, quote unquote corrected? God, I wish I had that crystal ball because <laughs> I, I I would have sworn a year ago, actually two years ago, pre COVID, I was thought we were bottoming then, okay. and 
You know what? I think we might be bottoming now. I mean, because I mean, the reason why I say that, I don't think they can go much lower. <laughs> um, yes. Besides insolvency. Now, there is rumors out there. They talk about Hexo and, and Aurora racing to be the first big companies to go bankrupt. Um, you know what? The balance sheets and stuff do scream those type of stories. Mm-hmm. But in a way, you know, the old story, too big to fail. Now, they're not too big to fail. They're not you know, General Motors or something like that in the United States. But, you know, there is a lot of money in it. Health Canada is, you know, they've got a lot of people got invested in this. So they are able to continue. The only people are able to continue to raise money in the cannabis space now are public companies with the multi-hundreds of millions of dollar valuations, you know, or the bigger, they are called at the top 10 or 15 because they need money and the bankers are in there already. There's convertible debt. No, the institutions have some. So um, I, I hope we're at the bottom but we just saw Canopy just, uh, you know, do some cost cutting this week as well. They're um, reducing $150 million a year in expenses, I think 256 jobs, another layoff. And of course, until these start turning profitable, you know, so the bottom could be around now, I hope. But really what it's looking at is, is you know, they've got to turn profitable. And then they got to gain trust of the investment community back. They so if they all turn profitable tomorrow, how long is that trust going to come back? And uh, and you know, I've been in the in the capital markets for twenty plus years, 20, 20, 25 years, and some people have a short memory. You know, the second it's good again, they're all jumping back in again. <laughs> you know, but that's the retail. The bankers won't be as forthcoming. The diligence will be a little bit more complete. But um, I really do think we're in the bottom stage where there'll be some volatility. There'll be to, it'll look like bright for a second and down and bright for a right. second. As it but until they start delivering numbers and quality too, you know, that's the other thing too. People uh, competing, as you said, about the black market. You know, we were, they were selling cannabis at 10 12 14 $15 a gram, $20 a gram. Uh, and you know, there's there for these corporations. They've got to pay their taxes. They've got to pay GST or HST, depending on the uh, the provinces they're in. Uh, and then they've got uh, any type of levies that are uh, the governments might or, or or local governments might have. Mm-hmm. Like I believe in Ontario, there was a time that you had to buy the cannabis via the Ontario liquor. Yeah, you did. Yeah, uh, through the LCBO. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So if you wanted to. Um, sell it in a store you had a like a aurora would have to sell it to to the the liquor board and then they were to buy it back for their stores and there was a 10 percent premium on that <laughs> so you know so as i said it's a little bit of the regulators uh they're also the higher costs because you know where to spend money and it's not just guys growing it in a basement or in the field somewhere or in uh in containers with uh, less uh, QA, less regulation, less uh, initial startups, and of course, you know, um, you know, using other pesticides or not using, but just you know, they don't test the quality of the, the cannabis, whatever type of um, ailments could be in them. Right. So that's very and and so, you know, the the uh, the black market can just continue saying, look, if you're selling at ten, we're selling it at eight. Yeah. You're selling at eight, we're selling it at six. So it's a hard way to compete against that. The only way to really beat that into the day is cost effective because people really, and especially after COVID now, are tight on money. And also uh, the, the other issue people had was, you know, I could phone my drug dealer and he could be here within an hour with my cannabis, but 
before you had to buy directly from them online and they would ship it to you and you get it a day or two later. Then they allowed dispensaries later. So now we have dispensaries, but if you go into these dispensaries and I go to them quite frequently just to see what they have, it's very, compared to you know, the local drug dealers, it's a still a much higher premium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and from anyone I know who's a regular the, consumer, there is quality concerns. Like, oh, sometimes it's dried out when you buy it at the, at the dispensary. I get it from my buddy. It's more fresh. And I have a few friends. I'm not, I'm not a regular consumer. I grew up in Montreal, so let's not say I never was. I'm just not yeah. now. And I've heard a lot of quality conversations that there was a promise it was going to be better quality, but by the time it goes through its whole chain of events, it actually isn't the, what you would want if you're a little bit more of a consummate uh, cannabis consumer. Yeah. And, and there were sitting, I mean, there were times they were sitting with, you know, thousands and thousands of kilos sitting in the warehouses waiting to get distributed. And by the time, as you said, it went through the process, it was all dried out. And people don't like that. So um, there are those still challenges that are still there today. I mean, one of the simplest solutions that I suggested um, right early on was, you know, in the beginning they said, well, you know, you had to get a license to have a dispensary. So that was the biggest issue between these um, producers, LPs, licensed producers. The LPs had issues with, you know, we can't get our product quick enough to, because we had to wait, there was no dispensaries. And then the process of that, uh, they should have just, what the Australia did was, they just said, okay, well, if you're a licensed pharmace- a pharmaceutical company like, you know, Shops Drug Mart or uh, any of those type of things, um, PharmaSafe, you're already handling opioids and controlled substances, so cannabis isn't any different or any worse. And then that, so why don't you automatically license them and then bang, what do you have? You have 10,000, 20,000, I don't know how many stores there are across Canada, instantaneously where product could be, that could be a, a, a quick swipe across the board. And would, and would have already had the workflow, the regulations, all the, they'd already been, for things that were a lot more serious, ultimately from a drug perspective than cannabis. Yeah. But then there's the then there's the argument. Well, then what about the regular guy or the people that you know that have been in the canvas space for the years, pushing for you know, um, mm, yeah. you know, you know decriminalization and, and legalizing. Then it wouldn't be fair to them. So now you look, you you go to big. So there is those arguments to be made. So it really is hard to regulate that because either way, it's like a politician. You're going to make someone upset. <laughs> Some, somebody's going to feel like they, they, they missed out on it or they've done the work and didn't get to benefit from it, which unfortunately, yeah, still when that, things get systemized or institutionalized, unfortunately, that is often a part of the journey, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and, you know, people with prior convictions, you know, and I'm talking like small convictions of possession of cannabis, you know, could, are not allowed to be involved in the industry technically, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, well, that that feels like a whole nother podcast. But no, I was really curious just, you know, from sitting on the outside, watching some friends, like I said, do well. And like, sure, we've all got those stories of the the groups that got out and the groups that stayed in a little bit too long, hoping for that next kind of, that next round. And geez, this will get itself tuned up in another couple of months. And that was 24 to 36 months ago. <laughs> yeah, and then you, know, you start to look then, all the, a lot of the cannabis guys and the cowboys of the industry, so to speak, um, that were involved. Now, they're all in cyclobin now. You know, uh, they're all in magic mushrooms or MDMA. Yeah, or, because they see that as getting ahead of the next wave of what's going to happen with legalization of psychedelics. Exactly. Which that still so, feels like it's a few years out, but that's a. Uh, I've actually got a gentleman on uh, tomorrow. I'm talking to a gentleman named Danny uh, Moteca who who owns Sygen here in Calgary, and they're doing clinical grade pharmaceuticals specifically to feed the clinical trial space, like globally, for a lot of this work that's being done around the positive, you know, coaching, counseling, psychological impact, and just chatting with him. And it's an interesting journey. And you know, I kind of asked. 
asked him the question. He said, you know, legalization, even at the medical level, he said, we're still years out, you know, psilocybin, two, three years potentially for recreational, if ever, is what his kind of perspective was. Mm. Yeah, and, and I will tell you this, you know, um, I, I, I caution investors to be careful like they would, and, and, and look, I, I was a, a licensed, uh, registered um, investment advisor, but it's my de- declaration right now, if I do not operate for a licensed brokerage firm, so therefore I'm licensed, but I'm not, reg- I'm registered, but I'm not licensed. Yep, I appreciate that. So I cannot give any um, investment advice, but I would caution people to be very cautious with crypto and with um any of these uh, cyclo, uh, cyclo, uh, you know, psychoactive, yep. um, it's, it could be very similar to the the cannabis space, but I think it's not, I don't see, let's not talk about crypto, let's talk about the, uh, the mushrooms and stuff. It's not going to be as big because no one's going to be building, you know, a million square feet of mushroom growth. No, it's very different. <laughs> you know, so it's it's going to be a smaller industry, and, I, and I'm talking about size, the amount of money they need to invest, so smaller. Um, pricing, I can't see being because uh, you know, mushrooms aren't as mainstream as cannabis, so I think it's fairly cheap uh, in the black market. So it's, you know, they don't have to sell fairly cheap. So it's going to be more medically driven for science uh, yeah, rather than a recreational. Here you can take mushrooms and hallucinate. It's going to be so it's going to be medically driven, like my other company, Pravaceutical. But you no, know, Pravaceutical we've been around since twenty fifteen. We're you know we're seven years in. On four of our programs, and I just know cannabis programs over four years old, doing science on that. So it's not something that tomorrow morning you're growing and selling out the door. So it, you know, it's a, it's a longer it's a, it, there's a longer tail on the journey for sure. Yeah. So I'd caution people to just you know look for the companies that are doing it right. But it's a long term investment. It's not just a trade you buy today and tomorrow morning you're rich like everybody seems to think <laughs> with cannabis. At the time. Talk to me a little bit about the parallels around you know we'll pivot it kind of. Thank you for that was thanks for that that like laying it out but thinking about you know we got our license to produce and our valuation went up and i've having some conversations with individuals in the biotech space which feels like there's some parallels there of like well you get reach this level of, of approval you reach this next testing protocol how much is that a little bit similar in the biotech space when it comes to the financial model of when your valuation kind of kicks or when you get those actually something from a clinical a testing you know we're trying to prove it out to actually like okay we have we've got to the next gate in our journey and how that can affect valuations with biotech yeah so you know you got to remember the pharmaceutical industry is running around for uh, you know, a century yes. or whatever it is and um, so these protocols and standards are already in place and it's been tested and true over decades so for example, I'll use an example of cannabis, what we're doing in Prevaceutical. Um, so with cannabis, we've taken the cannabinoids and we've now fingerprinted them. So, you know, for example, let's assume we take a, you know, a lemon, haze strain, indica strain. We take that and we fingerprint all the cannabinoids in there. And, you know, there's upward of any, and any, you know, they all vary depending on strains and, and, and what they are up to 500 different cannabinoids, terpenes, and flavonoids with them. So the cannabinoids are the CBG, CBD, THC, etc. Terpenes, uh, you know, are, which give it the different smells and flavonoids for the flavors. And those all have different uses. Now, we don't know what they all are yet. We're just exploring all of those. So what you do is, so we did the fingerprinting of that. Now, what you do is you got to do what's um, some 
testing other preclinical trials. You do some, you know, where you, you get the, you're going to create a product. Let's say we're going to create a product for uh, epilepsy. So we then find a strain, and, and for example, it's been well proven out there, maybe not fully clinical yet and full pharmaceutical proven, but um, Charlotte's Web, as we all know, has worked for uh, seizures in children. So let's assume you take that Charlotte's Web, you would fingerprint it, you would find a way to deliver it either via an oil, it via a gel cap or a nasal spray, etc., and you develop. Once you get through that stage, you then file your patents to protect your information. So there you get a, a little bit of a bump. You know, it's not a huge bump at that time in valuation. Then you do your preclinical trials where you, you, it becomes proof of concept. When you finish your preclinicals, you've proved your concept. And once proof of concept, then your valuation starts to climb a little bit more. Now you actually have to go through clinical trials, and there's 1A and 1B, which basically... Um, um, goes for efficacy to make sure so how efficacy works on um, for that that uh, epilepsy or seizures and the other one is for safety to make sure that it's safe that you know there's no toxic reactions or, or any type of other um, side effects or or even worse you know uh, items once you get to 1a and 1b and then you move to class 2 is for, for um, phase 2 and then you go to 3 and 3 it's uh, 3 and uh, 3b um, those are when your valuations really, really climb, and you get a status called IND, which is initial new drug. So, after you pass the preclinical trials, that's where your valuations can climb extremely quickly until you are approved. And that's why you can look at how GW Pharma was bought out by Jazz Pharmaceuticals for $7.9 billion, and they have one product on for epilepsy um, that you take, uh, Sativex. So, you know, um, so pharmaceutical, one product could be multi-billions. All you have to do is develop one. <laughs> All you have to do is develop one. What's the timeline, uh, Stephen, from like kind of when you, you like file your patents to preclinical? Like, is that a two-year or three-year? I know it varies, but is there kind of a, a, a loose kind of range around this, some guardrails around that? If money wasn't an issue, okay. you know, and you're not chasing money from investors, yeah. et cetera, um, we are... Uh, well, I better step back from that because in pharmaceutical we're working towards that direction. I was going to make some statements of where we are, where we're going, and I we're not public with that okay. yet. So I, I appreciate that. Good, good catch. That. Good catch. Um, yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> I'm really excited about it, though. That's why we'll talk. Um, we'll talk. We'll talk after the episode. <laughs> yeah. The you know our pre-critical trial. I'm sorry. Our all the way to pre-criticals we did you know, the, the testing, but we added. And we added also a nasal spray, so we confused it into a gel, so we could have a delivery system as well. So we had a delivery system with the cannabinoids and with a, an applicator. So we put, put, put a whole package together. That took us four years to get to now where we could start clinical trials. Now, going from one to three is anywhere five to eight years. Okay, on top of, on top of the eight. roughly four, and again, that's going to be depending on the situation. Yes, correct. However, we have been graced with some luck lately, and there's now ways to accelerate it. And when I mean by ways to accelerate it, there are in within the pharmaceutical industries ways that you can skip certain trials. Uh, for example, toxicity trials. We can skip toxicity trials if because 
I can go to GW Pharma and they've done a toxicity study on cannabis. Okay, you can piggyback on, on, on existing so science. I can piggyback on their, of course, I would have to pay them for it or license it from them. It's a, or once these because that's because that's their IP at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. But once they come off patent, you can then refer to those without their permission. So as we get deeper and deeper into this space, those time frames are going to start shortening. So thank you to VW Pharma and a few other people that have done, and we've actually had some other people that are not GW, other people that have done toxicity, and that's all they did, and then they spent whatever money on that, and we've run to them, wrote a check, and said, can we buy that toxicity study from you? Therefore, cutting off six months for us. You know, um, PK studies, PK studies, which is um, pharmacokinetical studies, where they do tests and start with mice tests, and then they go to sheep, because sheep are very similar to the nasal, if you're doing it in a nasal cavity, than the humans, you know, and you go you get to do those PK studies, and those are about six months each, you know, but if somebody else has done that, you can bypass those by using their data. So realistically speaking, if you had a product you knew today, like for example, let's say we take the lemon haze and it's good for, for epilepsy, and you had the delivery and you had all the um, pre you could file an IND status now, initial new drug, and you could probably two to three years from now have a product ready to go to shelves, about, about three years. So you could accelerate it into about a three-year base where that money's not the from issue. Five, from down from five to eight. So significant, like basically cutting it in half. Yes. Even, le- or even less than that. So as, a, as, a, as yes. a company from yourself, when you look at it, is that also the value or the opportunity? If, again, I always put the money as the asterisk, having multiple products at the, going through these cycles at different, because you have one and for some reason there's a hiccup along the way, that can be a game over type environment versus having a few different horses in the race. Like what's the strategy from a biotech, the financial, and hey, we're going to go, we're going to start moving forward with three or four of these simultaneously. So even if one trips and falls, we've still got the other ones in play. Or how do you guys, how do you look at that or think about that? Well, there's an argument to both sides of that. Now, as we talked about, you know, there's two sides to every coin. <laughs> so let me talk about Prevaceutical, my company, Prevaceutical Medical Inc. for a moment. And I'll tell you, because I'm going to use that as an example. Okay. We have four programs in that company. One is cannabis, which is our, is our soul gel program. The three others are unrelated cannabis. One is um, dual gene therapy for, uh, and we're using RNA technology like this mRNA used for um, the, the vaccines. We're using siRNA. And we've been doing that for four years as well. Uh, and that's for diabetes and obesity. Then we have a painkiller that's stronger than most opioids, but you cannot get addicted, cannot get addicted to it. You cannot create tolerance and you cannot overdose. And then we have a fourth one, which is a scorpion venom that we've synthesized, creating a synthetic version to help with uh, um, uh, brain cancer. Now, the reason why I chose to do four separate programs in this company was because usually with scientists that come up with these ideas, they start with, in the, they start in labs or they work in universities and they start on these ideas. They start with four. And at the end of the day, if one is successful, they're very, very happy that they made a success. So the idea is to start with four, two, three, or four, and hopefully you're left with one or two that are successful. Prevacitical has been lucky. We've completed three of our four programs and all three are successful so far at this point. Everything that we've hit has been correct, has been met our expectations or higher. The fourth one's 50% through and it's been successful at the 50% level as well. So we're looking like we're striking four for four right now. 
but three for three for sure so far. So and, and that mitigates some of the risk of the cannabinoid one doesn't work. Now, within the cannabis uh, product, then, once again, we will run two or three programs at the same time. And the reason being because it's it, it, we can include the cost in, you know, um, we can adjust the cost together. So when we go create a batch of stuff, for example, uh, you know, we order the applicators or we create the sole job. We can't, we got to create to minimum of 20, 30, 40, 50 gallons at a time, not small lab amounts. Um, so now if you, and you know, and that's much more expensive to create that type of stuff. So you could take a few and then, and then if one of them works, great, you've got a product. If the other one doesn't work, well, no big deal, but it, it's just more to market quicker. Now, talking about the two sides of the coin, I get a lot of grief from investors. Well, you should focus on one thing only and do the one thing right. Well, you know what? I do understand that, that view, but if it fails, it's all or nothing. Secondly, you know, I do believe in, in diversification there, that if one does fail, you know, the company's not done. And so... Hence why I've diversified into not only cannabis. So each one of those um, sections will be diversified in multiple areas. So the cannabis one will go for, uh, hypothetically speaking, like seizures or cancer or pain management or um, schizophrenia or um, you know, autism, etc. So we'll, we'll, we'll choose a few of those that we think is the highest probability to market and also has a big enough demand globally for that. So, and but then of course you need more money. But you know if you success, successful in one of those, you, and as this as the success compounds, then they'll fund easier and easier. So, I do believe in the diversification side, but it's a lot a lot more pressure on management of the company because you now need that little extra money in the beginning to get going through to get to that point when you'll start to see public money starting to come easily. And from that exact, the money flow perspective, like makes sense. You're in business now for years. You've had some successful go-to-market projects that have worked. You've got track record. Being in a startup situation for this, is it just who's the scientist? Who's the management team? Does it really come back? Because obviously you've not done anything quote unquote yet. How, you know, what are some of the key value propositions you put out there to the world to make them go, yeah, I'm confident giving you money, even though you're kind of, you're a startup in this space. Is it the team you bring together? Like what do people, what do investors look for specifically at that early stage? It's a combination of multiple things. It all depends on who you're talking to. Right. So, for example, um, I'm an experienced businessman over 30 years in business. I've been involved in a lot of projects, but I'm new to the pharmaceutical industry. So this is my first pharmaceutical biotech company I've been involved in from the scratch. When I started, I thought, it's going to be great. You know, we're going to get it. But you know what? I, I really didn't think hard enough about, yeah, Steve, this is a 10, 15 year poll coming here, buddy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got it. Got it. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking this is not just, you know, this is not two, three, four, five, and you're doing something else. You're, you're in, um, you're in for the, you're in for the duration. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, but I will tell you, I've learned a lot, but you know, um, what I have noticed in the pharmaceutical and biostatic space, the rewards, uh, it can be a lot harder in the beginning, but the financial reward when you do become successful is can be much greater looking at the GW Pharma, it's getting exported for seven for nine billion, you know, that's uh, just that alone is a story in itself. Mm -hmm. um, so you get a combination of everything. It's very important that you, so, you know, when you choose whoever the research scientist is, it's very important to see what he's done. And, and, and how he thinks in his train of thought. 
And so number one is whosoever you um, science you're following, I think that is key. That's your foundation. Yeah, that makes sense. That, you got to have that foundation. That's, that's your that's your brain there, trust right there, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hence why all four of my programs, Prevacitical, all are designed by Harry, and he's been working on them for the last 17 or 18 years. Mm-hmm. So it's not Life's like work stuff, he's, yeah. you know, <laughs> he's been working with us for four or five, but you know, 13 years prior to that, he was developing these things for 13 years. Mm-hmm. How much, and are, are, do you have before. any affiliations? Do you work with any of the universities and part of the lab? Like, have, have you, is there a balance there? Because I've talked to a few people lately. There seems to be a lot more, that's where the research is getting done. So the commercialization of some of those companies are coming out of some of the universities. Yeah, so we do. Um, we work with the uni- uh, with the, the Queensland University in Australia, Brisbane, Australia, and Queensland. Okay. That's where Dr. Harry Perek is, and there's at a place called Pace uh, Pharmaceutical um, uh, of Excellence uh, Pharmaceutical. Anyway, um, uh, and he's a pharmacist. So we work with them, and we pay the university, and they get little students and stuff, and all led by Harry. Uh, okay. So that reduces our costs. But once we go to clinical trials. Then there's another university we'll be using that does clinical trials within them. For example, there's Southern Cross over there, and there's other ones. And in our in our um, in our DNO, which is our diabetes and obesity program, we're actually using like Murdoch University, and there's four universities helping in that research. So yeah, so we use the, all of as many as we can at the beginning. But once you start to get the clinical trials and commercialization stage, that's when you walk away. From, don't walk away from it. It's when you advance to to um, a, C- a CRO. Okay, a different stage in the process. Any challenges that the, the, the university academic mindset versus the entrepreneurial, uh, you know, uh, build a business mindset? Because those are two very competing ways of looking at the world, in my experience. Oh, oh absolutely. Scientists want to sit there in R&D forever. Yes, they do. That's because that's what they you love know, to do. <laughs> that's their favorite thing. They do. They're in R&D forever. Yeah. And then the entrepreneur wants to get the damn thing on the shelf tomorrow. <laughs> and so you really have to be cautious that you marry those two together. You don't want the entrepreneur pushing it too hard that you you, you, you have a hole in your science or you have a right. weakness in yeah. there. And you don't want the scientists to sit there and burn away all your money R&D. You know, so you, you want to keep the scientist continuing to evolve and, and evaluate new opportunities and continue to evolve the products. But you want them to get to a point where you can commercialize. So you, you want to let them continue. You want to focus on, say, one of them and quickly get that one through to commercialize. So once that's in commercialization and it's proven, then you've got some valuation. Then you can start getting more money to develop the rest. Mm-hmm. And then the scientist can continue doing his R&D. But also you want to ensure that the CEO and the management of the company like myself doesn't pressurize them, say, look, you know, we don't need to do PK studies. We're going straight to clinical trials. Uh, and, you know, there's ways to do that. But, you know, that PK could be very important showing that, you know, mm-hmm. that if you're doing it through the nasal spray, it doesn't work in humans through the nasal. It has to be oral, you know. So, you you know, you didn't prove that what's called bioavailability, you know. And the body's example. ability to access it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, so from that perspective, so there's checks and measures put in place, which as a, as the end you know human that might be consuming or absorbing or whatever this product, you need to know that there's a journey. But the, like you said, it sounds like a really interesting balance between the hard driving, get it on the shelf, and the reality of no, we need to do the research. There's a there sounds like there's a very delicate but clear balance in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we allowed you know with Prevacutical, I've had a lot of shareholders complain to me all the time, and you know, and I've said them. Look, if you're looking for an instant gratification trade, go find some stock that's just going to list in an IPO and it'll trade like crazy first days, buy and sell, trade and day trade. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm not your company for that right now. Now, as a, but it's R&D and development. So we're a long-term buy, you know, some of our stock and sit on it for two, three, four, five years. And, and during the time, value it. Are we making progress? Uh, are we complete idiots in the company, <laughs> et cetera? And then you decide to cut your losses or move on or, or take, a, take a profit or whatever it may be. Right. Um, but... As I said, you know, the scientists, now that uh, Prevacetical has matured and, you know, we're seven years old and we got these four products, um, it's important now for us to push the commercialization. We, all of our R&D is done. Now we're going into the clinical phase. So now this is where we need to hit these. If, if this trial is six months, we need to do it in six months, not nine or ten months, yep. you know, to hit yep. those targets. So now we want to push the clinical people, the CROs, to get things done on time rather than just, you know, we're taking a month though because, you know, this we take holidays in the summer. Well, I don't care if we take holidays in the summer. I'll find a CRO that does Yeah, I just, I need to get, quote unquote, get, get, we know. need to get some shit done. <laughs> what about yeah. jurisdictions? Curious, uh, Australia, you're, I know you're based out of, uh, you're, you know, I think you're, you're, you're calling in from the West Coast right now uh, in, in Vancouver, but yet you've working with a group in Australia. When you looked at this globally, was it, this was the right researcher and this is where he was? So you ended up in Australia or is there certain jurisdictions, I think back to even the comment where Australia is versus Canada of the reason why you're there. Just just curious, because when the world is your was, opportunity and you guys chose Australia. Mm-hmm. There's multiple reasons why we're in Australia, but we're also global in a way. Like we're doing stuff in Europe right now. Okay. Um, I'm, uh, but I will tell you this. Um, why I chose Australia? First of all, Dr. Harry Preck was, is, a, is a, 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 a doctor and scientist at the University of Queensland, so he was there. Okay. Number two... I look at the world as kind of having three, and this this is not technically true, but it's sort, sort philosophically of philosophically true. There's like three, <laughs> yeah. It's there's like three health jurisdictions. So it's the EU, and then in the United States we have the FDA. In Canada we have Health Canada, but really Health Canada does what the FDA does. So we kind of so we got the EU regulators, we have the FDA, and Health Canada is the secondary one, and then in Australia had the TGA, which is the Therapeutic Goods Association. Now, if you know about cannabis, you can have GMP, which is good manufacturing practices, uh, quality products. But then you have to, for stuff to go to Europe, it has to be EU GMP because that's much more stringent. Mm, I see. What we like to buy, so only North America requires GMP, but EU requires it. Um, Australia's TGA is considered the most stringent in the world and most trusted in the world. Ah, so okay. if your product is done by the TGA, the EU or the FDA or anybody will accept their findings. So it's globally accepted anywhere. With the FDA, you can it'll be accepted by the EU, but you know to produce it, you'll have to do some extra steps. There's a whole bunch of other things. So that was one of the reasons we chose that, because also Harry was there. But secondly, when I was involved with cannabis, and still am, but when I first started, uh, Rona Ambrose was the health minister at the time, and we tried to have meetings with her. I, I don't think we could even get to her secretary. I don't I think we got some robocaller on the other side or some marketing. I'm just being really sarcastic. Of course, I, I'm marketing. picking up on it. <laughs> picking up yeah. on it. Um, but there was just no... They, weren't willing, they weren't willing to engage in an active conversation is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I don't know if it was we're not willing to or just that uh, no, we, we just don't have the right channels into yeah, it yeah. or uh, it's not, it's not. But in Australia, when I arrived there, um, within 48 hours, it was, I was in the federal health minister's office, walked in. Of course, I've got connections over there, but they walked me into his office and I had a meeting with him for an hour. I was with the premier of Queensland. I was the, the two different director generals, the health minister of the, of the, of the state. 
Um, they then put me in touch with all the different divisions of the Office of Drug Control. So they welcomed me and said, how can we help you? And so I have a clear direct line with them when I got questions or if I got problems, I phoned them and they, they, they guided us through that and we worked them out together. So that's what I really enjoyed. But I will tell you another secret that most people don't know. They have an R&D, uh, they're very pro-Australia um, medical stuff, pharmaceuticals or research, anything to do with medical. So the government, for every uh, dollar we spend there, the government gives us 43.56 cents 43 cash back. As, oh, a direct money, like dollar on dollar. Interesting. Yeah, so every dollar we get 43.5. Now, they just this year they've increased it to 48%. So for every million dollars I spend, I get $480,000 back the next year from the government. Not a tax credit. A I was. I'm just going to clear. Not not a tax incentive because if you're not a, if you're not in a taxable situation, that becomes irrelevant really quickly. Yeah. So, oh, so they're they're incentivizing get, the behavior they want to see, which I really appreciate. Where our Western Canadian government maybe isn't doing that in Alberta the way that some people would like, but that's another that's another podcast. <laughs> so so all those things made it for me hmm. easy to work with Australia and why. Uh, so it reduced my cost by 43%. I mean, yes, I had to come up in this but the next year I got the money I could dump back into the next program. Yeah, it starts right? the cycle. And and um, once you've got your and, products, you now have the credibility of a market that is is recognized at the highest level for for quality, for QC. Correct. Hmm. So hence why we why we focused and now uh, we are working on things in Europe that will become public knowledge fairly soon once we've come to terms with the transaction there. And, you know, I've been talking, trying to talk to the federal government here and the and the, my provincial government here about our, our painkiller because we keep hearing here in Canada how they want to get this opioid crisis mm -hmm. and the, over deaths, the overdose and deaths are skyrocketing and it's it's really, uh, you know, in itself a pandemic. <laughs> it, um, yes, it's a crisis. For sure. You know, and, but I get no response. Hmm. Um, and I will just tell we, I just sent you an email not long ago. There was an article I um I just sent you, if you pull that up. Um, so have you ever heard of the uh, the pharmaceutical, uh, sorry, the pharmacology, um, the British Pharmacology, British pharmacology Society uh, journal is considered the uh, gold standard of any type of peer-reviewed. So when you create something, uh, it is peer-reviewed. Okay. <laughs> and it's very, very stringent to get your product peer-reviewed. And then once it's peer reviewed, their findings is it's 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 like the leader in the world. This the British Pharmacology Society. So our painkiller was just peer reviewed and just uh, written up about five days ago. Did you see? I that got, yeah, I'm, I just yeah, I'm scro I'm scrolling it here just as we're chatting. This I yeah. want you to go right to the last page. Go to the last page, page thirty seven. Okay. And at the very end, what is the clinical significance? So they're asking, what is the clinical significance of the study, yep. right? Mm -hmm. Read that out loud. <laughs> Select peptides KA305 and KA311 showed remarkable in vivo uh, antinoception comparable to morphine, KOPR agonist that holds significant potential in pain management. 
So that's a big sign of, uh, you know, basically going directly on terms of the opiate category and pain, and pain management. And, <clears throat> and further up, if you look, uh, it says basically that the, the, because it's a non-orphan based algorithmic, um, you know, these candidates are non, um, the, the pharmacokinetics, which is PK, as I was telling you, and they'll show that this, it's non-toxic, it cannot you know, overdose, and it cannot create tolerance. And tolerance means that you have to keep upping your dose. Yeah. You, know, you start taking some, it doesn't work anymore, you up your dose, so, so you're not increased. So... This is a, a so this is really a bankable study in a way. You can take this to anybody in the, uh, and, uh, and technically be able to finance this program. I try to talk to our government, and all I hear is crickets. Hmm. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> we're definitely so not going to solve that issue on this podcast today. <laughs> no. So it looks like I'll be talking to the Australian government about moving those clinical trials forward. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah. Which is sad because... Yeah. You know, we're British Columbia, the parent company is a British Columbia company invested by our British uh, Canadians and myself and family. And um, this the subsidiary is, not, is the research division is an Australian company. And really, um, the money's come from here, flowed through down there. But the government back there has been giving us you know, 43.5 cent back. Yeah, so they're playing ball. It's just sad that we can't do some of this in our home country as well. I'd like to be participating. I'd love to participate, like you know, University of British Columbia and Queensland participated in the study. Uh, even so even from like a joint a, from a joint approach, even from a collaboration, and everything, yeah, the, making the world a smaller but place. Yeah. As you said, we're not going to figure that one out. This <laughs> day, probably Stephen, as much as I think we could take a shot at it, I don't think we'll I don't think we'll get there at, at, by the end. Uh, last question, I'm curious. You mentioned from you know. Where, the investor side of it, the people that are interested in, the people that obviously you guys are publicly traded, but people that you know that express interest. Are you getting interest from around the world? Are, are Canadian investors open and comfortable investing in the biotech space? I'm assuming there's some groups that are and some groups that is very foreign to them. What's been your experience in just kind of going on that that side of building this business? Um, when, you, when I've talked to the bankers in the beginning, up to let's say now, when I talk to the bankers, they're all like, oh, six years, seven, eight years. Oh. They're all looking for instant gratification for their clients. <laughs> yeah. You know, because they got spoiled. People would buy a cannabis stock and the next day sell it at 100% gain or 50 So everyone's got used to this instant gratification. Um, so it's hard to get people, you know, if there's not instant, then same with cryptocurrencies. Everyone thinks they're going to buy it at a penny and it's going to be $60,000 next week. Um, and so that's kind of difficult. So the bankers in, in the startup phase is harder, but you will, there are the odd guys that are willing to take shots that have done um, pharmaceutical stuff before. Yeah, it always co comes well. down to comfort, right? And in past experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but the the general retail investor, there are some guys, like, like I've got some people that have invested with me since 2015, and uh, I talked to them. And I say to them, you know, I'm sorry the stock's not doing that well right now, but, you know, we just, we, we're part, it's going to be tough. They're like, Steve, we don't really care. We know it's pharmaceutical. It's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. They've said, quite frankly, we've bought it. I'm not even looking at it. We'll wait till you get a product online. And then, of course, the same person will come back to me. They say, oh, by the way, I made enough money on Aurora with you that it doesn't matter if I lose all that money anyway. <laughs> so, so you get a little bit of everything. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, pharmaceutical has over 7,000 shareholders now. So when I started the company, we had 150. Hmm, you know, and um, we just had our AGM and it was 7,000. I have uh, one of my largest shareholders is in Germany. You know, he owns about 9% of the company. A, mar a market uh, that's very very familiar he with the pharmaceutical board, space also. Mm -hmm. yeah, he's bought 50 million shares out of our 530 million shares or 520 million shares. 
And then, you know, I've got a whole bunch in the U.S., Canada, so and in Australia. So we have a, 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 there's a global support for it. Interesting. Okay. Um, but I do get a lot of grief from everybody. Like, give us news. Well, you know, we're regulated. I can't be putting on. And, and if I put out news, the room goes, it's fluff. Well, I can't give you something. <laughs> I can't give you a clinical trial two years in when we're only one year in. You yeah, know? yeah. So, it, it takes it, it takes the time that it takes. Mm-hmm. You know, they they want news. I give it its fluff, and then when I don't give it, I'm not updating. You're damned if you do, so, and damned if you don't. Yeah. So I've just you know decided that you know unless it's really important to tell, or it's something material, or it is an advancement. I'm not, you know, you see these guys putting pressure. We're going to be at this. I think, oh, you know, we we um, commend the U.S. government about, you know, becoming, uh, looking towards regulation, you know, for cannabis. Who cares if the government? That's that's not a pressure release company should be putting out. It's fluff. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I hear, I, I hear, yeah. And part of the strategy going going public early on versus waiting, and was that just uh, creating a better vehicle for allowing funds to flow in? Yes, and also being able to, because as I told you, I was a broker and stuff in my right. past, investment stuff. So um, I had access to other brokers and investors through that community. Uh, part, just part so of what, what, what made sense from your network, which is such a huge part, right? But I, yeah, but my wife and I, we've put in about $4 million of our own money into Prevaceutical. And, and a lot of a lot of the, the, the promoters say, you know, there's a rule of thumb. You don't put more than half a million of money in. I say, well, first of all, I believe in what I'm doing. Which, yeah. Secondly... If I don't believe in it, then why should I believe my, get my shareholders to listen to me? And then thirdly, when the times were tough, that the company would have failed because we didn't have the money to finish this trial and no one wanted to invest, we funded those to get us to the next part. So we fund when there is no money available. And then when the money is available, we take from public. So that way we can, you know, it's, it's in essence double or tripling my own personal resources to be able to get through because I know it's a long road. And having the experience in the background, it's not, this is not your first rodeo. I'm also hearing loud and clear, no. <laughs> which I appreciate. Yeah. Stephen, thanks for the conversation, the transparency, the, you know, kind of dusting off your crystal ball a little bit, telling me what you think about the world and the things that are happening in it. <laughs> and uh, I'm learning more about the biotech space all the time. And it's interesting. And, you know, as a, as investors, it's hard to invest in what you're not comfortable with. So it all starts with learning and, and understanding. And if you're not the first one to say like, yeah, the, the risks are high, but the payoffs can also be equate that risk. And when you look at it that way and you've got a little bit more of a horizon, this can be a really interesting asset class to think about. Mm. You know, diversification is key. You know, number one, don't spend money you don't have, <laughs> yes, you know. Otherwise. Uh, you know, buy your long-term holdings that pay dividends and stuff. If you are that type of investor and you have the resources for that, yep. take a few long shots here and there. But do diligence on the person. I mean, I see a lot of these stock promoters that do. If you you pull them up on Google, they do six to twelve deals a year. You know, they're only in for it to make the company go public, then they're gone. Well. Okay. Now you can make some money from but those are day trades. Yeah, that's a different thing. That's a, that's a whole different level of engagement, yeah. even as an investor. <clears throat> but also. Don't always take when you go online, don't always believe everything you read because, you know, everyone has failures too. No one, <laughs> I don't think there's a successful person I know that hasn't had a failure. Now, it's how they deal with that failure. One of my favorite quotes, and you'll see it on my, I believe it's on my Twitter or LinkedIn, it says, you know, um, um, I, I, it's, it's, it's about a CEO. And, and it's very important, the fact that, you know, that... Um, the difference between a good CEO and a great CEO is how the CEO handles yeah, yeah, the storms. Yeah, if I can yeah. quote you on your own quotable quote. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, read it, I read it this morning. It made me smile. I was like, yep, no, I get it. And it's important yeah. because, you know, so 
you know, if a company fails, how did that person handle it? Do they stay there till the end, or do they pour it off somebody else? Did they take responsibility? You know, did they say, look, you know, I know guys that got in the camera space ten years ago and failed because it wasn't the right time. Yeah, yeah. You know, no matter what you did, we're going to change government's perception at the time. So. So also be a bit lenient when you look at the people, look at you know what they were involved in, because I can tell you I've done some guys that have done some fabulous things. They just, their timing was wrong. Yeah, and enough. it's not, and, and no one has that crystal ball. Yeah, no, that's a very do 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 your research and play in the space that actually makes sense for for you. And we, it's easy to get caught up in the FOMO and the stories and the you know, but people tend to tell the shiny stories, not all the stories. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I like to tell both sides of the story. I like to tell people, look, it's a long haul. You might be, you know, sit to sit on it. Come talk to me in a few years, and if I'm wrong, be mad. But don't come to me later and tell me that I was that I that was right and you, that you didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, I think that's a mic drop moment, Stephen. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Obviously, you've got you're on LinkedIn. I found you. you can people can find you there. Also, AsterianCannabis.com as well as Prevacutical Prevacutical.com. You guys, you got both two good websites here with lots of information. I encourage people to people leave this episode going, huh, I'm curious. I want to check something out. Then to me, that was a good episode. <laughs> yeah, you know, have a look at the privacy to kind of our pipelines. You'll see all four of our programs and they're very, very interesting. Very cool. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate your time. That was a, that was a hell of a good chat. Great. Thank you very much, Tyler, for having me. 